few tragedies can match that of unrequited love. The physics are inescapable when adoration collides with indifference or ambivalence, tears fall. And then there is the question, will the spurned party give up hope, or will they risk deeper wounds with further pursuit? This is a story about a beautiful marriage gone wrong. It's a story about auspicious beginnings and betrayal and consequences, about the joys of proximity and the curse of distance. And it's a story about a kind, severe God determined to love those who struggle to love him back. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. The sun has not yet risen. Its rays, though, have scaled the wall of horizon, chasing the black from the sky. Birdsong echoes off the mountains. And with one eye on the mountain, Moses sets to work. One rock, then another, and another, heaved from the sand and carried to the pile that is more than a pile. It is an altar. Building an altar of unhewn stones is a straightforward task, but it requires care. Each rock must be considered, its contours and crevices, its protrusions and idiosyncrasies. Every rock is different, and Moses must find a way to help them coexist, fit together, and stay together so they can serve as a place of worship. There's an art to it, and Moses is getting better with practice. After the altar, more stones. Moses' skill is put to a more exacting test now as he builds a pillar, Levi. Another pillar, Judah. And then 10 more, Benjamin, Dan. Gad, Asher, Manasseh, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, Reuben. An array of rising columns representing each of the Hebrew tribes, the descendants of the sons of Israel, formerly known as Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. The sun now hangs low, casting warm morning light across the stones, which draw long shadows across the sand. Twelve pillars stand straight and tall. They look like you could build something on them. Moses smiles, hopefully. He can still hear the ascending voices of his people as he delivered the terms of the covenant he received on the mountain. Everything Yahweh has said, we will do. Yes, yes. They balked at the fullness of the presence of God, but they have expressed a desire to serve Him, to live with Him, 
that is good. Now those people gather, according to Moses' instruction, in an enormous throng around the altar and the pillars. Young men arrive leading rams and bulls from the Hebrews' livestock pens. The young men slide knives across the necks of the animals and hold basins to capture the cataracts of blood. The people watch as Moses takes the scarlet liquid and splashes it against the altar. One bull carries ten gallons of blood, and they have sacrificed many bulls, along with other animals. So by the end, the altar is immersed, every stone washed in the blood. But Moses has only used half of it. He now pours the remaining blood from the basins into bowls, Egyptian silver and gold flashing in the sunlight, reflecting a curved image of the slain offerings and the people and the mountain and the sky. Then Moses' voice rings out across the crowd as he reads the scroll on which he wrote the words of Yahweh the ways of being into which Yahweh intends to lead the Hebrews as they walk with him. They nod as Moses reads, and when he's finished, they solemnly pledge, We will do everything Yahweh has said. We will obey. Finally, Moses dips his fingers into the bowls, or perhaps it's a cluster of hyssop he uses, rare here in the wilderness, but worth finding for this moment, a fitting echo of the night they marked their homes so the destroyer would pass over them. The hyssop emerges, robed in crimson, and Moses turns to the crowd. The tribal elders likely stand in front and experience the bulk of what happens next. Moses raises his arm, flicks his wrist, and sends blood sailing into the multitude. The people flinch, surely, and then steady themselves to receive the ruby rain. This is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words, Moses tells them. Flecks of red spatter across robes and faces, cling to braids and beards, speckle the golden earrings of the women and children. The late morning sun shines on the children of Abraham, bedecked with the blood of sacrifice, freckled with life. Yahweh smiles. The covenant is confirmed. The vows have been offered. The marriage ceremony is complete. Now for the reception. Moses smiles at his older brother, Aaron. They're climbing Sinai and accompanied once more by Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Joshua, too, climbs beside them. He can barely contain his excitement. Yahweh has invited him, invited the group of them up 
onto the mountain again. The question is, why? Halfway up, Moses stops. Here. The group catches their breath as they look around. So what now? But then something draws their attention upward. Something blindingly bright. It's not the sun. Not at noon on the clearest summer day has the sun shone so intensely. The elders gasp. Aaron and his sons stare, breathless. Joshua feels a tear, perhaps, travel across his cheek. Moses gazes, transfixed. In time, a few seconds, minutes, hours, their eyes adjust and they explore the scene before them. It's clear they are seeing the God of Israel. Or part of him. It's like he's standing on some kind of surface above them, a transparent surface, like a clear dome. But it's not clear. It's blue, blue like sapphire. No, not sapphire, lapis lazuli, the deepest cerulean with with gold streaking across it as if it were a child of sky and sun and Yahweh standing atop it. They are looking through a portal into the heavens themselves. They stand speechless for no one knows how long. And then, altogether, they're awakened from their trance by smells, wonderful smells of steaming bread and seasoned meat and costly wine. There's a table. Was it set by him? Without question, they sit and eat and drink in the presence of Yahweh. Wonder makes room for delight, and soon smiles and laughter mark the feast when they're not staring at him. Finally, Yahweh speaks. Time for more closeness. Come further up to me on the mountain, he tells Moses, and stay with me. I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Do the others hear only noise, or can they, in this place, closer to him, discern his voice as well? Moses nods, rises, and turns toward the summit. And then Joshua's eyes grow wide as Moses gestures for him to follow. As Moses and Joshua climb, the cloud descends on the top of the mountain. But the cloud is different than it's been. It's charged with pulsing energy, with light and warmth and hope and joy and peace. The cloud settles on Sinai 
enveloping its peak in the glory of Yahweh. Joshua follows Moses further up and stops finally as Moses pauses at the threshold of the cloud. Before them, the mist swirls and churns, a milky, vaporous curtain. When Moses sits, Joshua sits, and together at the doorstep of the divine, looking down on the sprawling Israelite camp thousands of feet below, the two men sit for six days. The quiet, the company of a friend, Yahweh's manifest presence, this must be a peaceful, welcome Sabbath for Moses and Joshua. Meanwhile, on the ground, the people look up at the mountain with untrained eyes. They're terrified, terrified for Moses and Joshua and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the elders, terrified of what they see. For when Yahweh's glory settles on the mountaintop, it does not look to them the way it looks to Moses and Joshua. It looks to the people like a violent inferno, devouring Sinai and anyone on it. This Yahweh, this shape-shifting, amorphous God, he, he's unpredictable, always too far, except when he's too near. If only, if only he was something like the others, the gods of Egypt or the Amalekites, manifest in solid metal rather than windswept haze. Atop Sinai, Joshua must be trying to guess how long they'll remain. Perhaps as day three gives way to day four, he thinks of Yahweh's fondness for the number seven. Maybe something will happen on the seventh day. And something does. A sound like a gigantic waterfall crashing around them issues suddenly from the cloud. Joshua's head snaps toward the mist, and in the corner of his eye, he sees Moses rise. He's called me up, Joshua. Joshua stares as the old man strides into the white wall and disappears from view. Amidst the camp, Aaron paces. His beard flies this way and that as the wind shifts. He wrings his hands. The people's words play again and again in his mind. Come, make us gods who will go before us. For this Moses, the, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. It's been weeks Almost six weeks since Moses and Joshua went up the mountain. Six weeks since they had a word from Yahweh. Impatience begets uncertainty. Uncertainty begets doubt. Doubt begets despair. Despair begets desperation. Moses has died up there. Q 
killed by wandering raiders or bitten by a snake, died of old age or fallen off a cliff or, or been consumed in that fire. Make us gods. The line between crowd and mob blurs. And so Aaron paces. What is he supposed to do? It's Moses' job to lead these people. Why would he disappear for so long? And what is Yahweh up to? Why has he moved up to the mountain? What about them down here? What about these people who need reassurance? They're not used to worshiping a god who's so shapeless. If they just had a representation, something they could touch that would always be in the same place, it, it could point them to him. Yes, Yahweh said they're to have no gods before him, but this would be an image of him. And does Aaron think of the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath. Many will wonder about the state of Aaron's head and heart in this moment especially given what happens next. Fine, Aaron says to the demanding crowd. Tear off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Word travels. Jewelry is gathered. A fire is lit. By the time the gold arrives at Aaron's feet, an impressive blaze licks the crucible positioned atop it. Moses' brother scoops the earrings into his wrinkled bronze hands and lifts them to the fire, one load after another, into the crucible. The gold twists and writhes in the heat, each piece forfeiting the shape bestowed by its creator, drooping and finally sliding into a uniform soup. Next, Aaron pours the liquid metal into a mold, Presumably, he's commissioned it, given direction on the size and shape, and taken possession with a satisfied nod. The gold splashes into the mold, conforming to its twists and curves, obediently becoming something else. Finally, Aaron stands before the elders and the people of Israel, Miriam and Zipporah and Gershom and Eleazar and Caleb and Hur among them. He lifts his arms high, raising aloft a shining calf. The people cheer, welcoming the idol. Someone shouts, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. The cry choruses across the throng, echoed again and again. Yes, yes! More cheers. Gods? No, Aaron box at this abrupt decline into polytheism. He made one bull. It was to represent... Aaron immediately begins canvassing the area, gathering rocks as large as he could manage. Stacks one atop another. An altar. Why doesn't Aaron use the altar on which they made the covenant with Yahweh? The fact that he does not seems telling. Is he ashamed? He's at least unsure of this act, but he thinks he can still salvage the situation, still channel the people's splintering devotion in a direction that's vaguely correct. Aaron stands before the altar and shouts above the people, Tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh! 
will there? In the morning, the people rise early. After a breakfast of manna, they sacrifice burnt offerings and present fellowship offerings. The golden calf looks on from its pedestal, unblinking, motionless. They nod. There, surely Yahweh is satisfied with these sacrifices. Now, after all that work, to eat and drink. It's sometime during these festivities that things begin to shift, or better, that the tree of their posture begins to blossom. Provoked, it seems, by a few thousand ringleaders and sustained, perhaps, by the apparent endorsement of their reactionless idol, the Israelites unwind, unspool, really. Drinking turns to drunkenness. Song turns to shouting, dancing turns to debauchery, and eventually, it seems, to orgiastic bacchanalia. Surely, when Aaron realizes what's developed, he's mortified. Or does he indulge? Or perhaps look the other way? If Aaron is appalled by the people's behavior, he cannot stop it. A flood of sin laughs at any who would stand in its way. The people have left one enemy behind in Egypt and invited a much greater foe into their camp. Moses emerges from the cloud holding two precious tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments, the stone etched with the very finger of God. But Joshua barely notices them. He scrambles to his feet. Moses, I've been calling for you. There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses shakes his head, his eyes misty. Not the sound of crying out in triumph. And not the sound of crying out in defeat. The sound of crying out, I hear. He knows. The camp of the Israelites is seething. Drunken cries volley back and forth. Throbbing music coils around bodies, writhing half-naked. Men and women squirm and jerk in coital abandon. Over the din, uproarious toasts and baying ovations are raised to a golden idol reigning over the scene from on high. Joshua stands agape. Moses trembles with shock and rage. The old man screams, a twisted howl ripped from his throat and hurls the stone tablets against a rock. The covenant shatters, sending shards ricocheting through the air and falling lifeless into the sand. Moses moves toward the golden calf, shoving people out of his way, one face, then another, and another drop as they catch sight of the prophet. Suddenly, sobriety crashes like a wave over the crowd. Has Aaron seen him yet? 
Moses climbs the pedestal and yanks the idol from its footing. Hundreds watch now, surely, as word of his arrival spreads. In moments, Moses stands at the enormous fire, the one that gave birth to this abomination, and hurls the golden calf into the flames. Tears burning in his eyes, he spins around and surveys the panting Hebrews. Suddenly, he turns back toward the fire, thrusts in his staff, and shoves the idol out of the fire, sending it tumbling into the sand. Employing Joshua's help, perhaps, Moses takes a hammer to the gold, pulverizing it for what feels like hours as the Israelites look on awkwardly. When the calf has been reduced to powder, Moses commands its worshipers to follow him to the rock spring, where he dumps the gold dust onto the pooled water. Drink it! The people trade shocked expressions. Drink! Moses' staff points at the turbid water, his jaw set, tears in his beard. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Moses stares at Aaron in his tent, incredulous, demanding an answer. Aaron swallows. Do not be angry, my lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this man Moses, who has brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. Aaron hesitates, perhaps, turning his eyes away from his brother. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Without a word, Moses gets up and storms through the rows of tents toward the entrance of the camp, bowing down to an idol and letting the people devolve into this rabble. What will the Amalekites and others do if they get word of this? They hear that the people whose only defense is Yahweh have forsaken Yahweh. They will laugh and pounce, and this nation will cease to be before it even is. He's standing at the gate now, climbing perhaps onto a boulder as the people watch. Whoever is for Yahweh, come to me, Moses shouts. Murmuring, a pregnant silence. Finally, every person of his own tribe, the tribe of Levi, moves toward the prophet, a penitent Aaron among them. Zipporah, Moses' sons and their families, Joshua, of course, Miriam. But as these step to Moses, other feet stay planted. So many of them. With wet eyes and trembling hands, Moses looks at the people of Levi. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Every man strap a sword to his side. The Levites' eyes grow wide as they take in Moses' words, Yahweh's words. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. What happens next is almost impossible to watch. Levite men move through the throng of Israelites, raising sword to throat. Women scream and children cower. Levite blades drip with scarlet as the ringleaders of the idolatrous orgy fall one by one. 
This is not an indiscriminate massacre. They seem to be targeting the most egregious offenders, those who led others into wickedness. How do they know who to execute? He must be leading them, but he's leading them to their brothers, their friends. Finally, the Levites sheathe their swords. They stand before Moses, flecks of red spattered across robes and faces, clinging to their beards. Tears certainly mingle with the crimson, blood and water flowing down the cheeks of the men. Three thousand bodies lay sprawled on the sand behind them, the wages of sin. With unspeakable grief and reluctant satisfaction, Moses nods. You have been set apart to Yahweh today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. This is the beginning of a generations-long calling on the tribe of Levi. They will serve Yahweh and their nation in very particular ways administering justice, yes, but also bringing beauty, offering sacrifice, making music, enabling worship. It will be the Levites who serve as priests, an extension of God amidst humanity, an identity meant for and rejected by the entire nation. The Levites will occupy the dangerous, wondrous space closest to Yahweh, and it will cost them but nothing offered to him is offered in vain. The next day, Moses gathers the people. He's had time to sleep and to think and to pray. You have committed a great sin. The words echo as they are passed back through the crowd to those out of earshot. But now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Women and men glance at one another. What does he mean? What can he do? Surely he won't offer himself. Would he offer himself? Atop Mount Sinai, Moses catches his breath and then speaks to Yahweh. What a great sin these people have committed. They have made for themselves gods of gold. He shakes his head, still incredulous, then swallows. But now, please, forgive their sin. As soon as the words leave his lips, Moses knows they're absurd. The idol, the defilement, the orgy, and on the heels of their entrance into the covenant, who could forgive something like that? Those who led this rebellion paid a price, and a price must be paid by those who followed, or paid for those who followed. Please, forgive their sin, but if not, then wipe me out of the book you have written. Please. Moses is kneeling now crying into the electric cloud, moved by an intense force he can finally name. It's love. He loves them, and he would give his life for them. 
But Moses has his own sins that need atonement. He is not a spotless lamb. They need a better Moses. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. The voice is somehow calm and charged. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. That time will come soon enough. Yahweh will strike his people with a plague because of what they did with the calf. Right now, though, he has something else to say to Moses, something that will be difficult for Moses to hear. Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. It's time to leave, time to move toward Canaan and, and take the land. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. A beat passes. But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might put an end to you on the way. You will not go with... But... What does Moses feel in this moment? Is he afraid of entering the promised land without the might of Yahweh? No, the angel of Yahweh has been pledged. There will be no problem taking the land with the angel on our side. Is Moses scared by the wrath of this God who could put an end to them in a moment? He is fearsome. Is Moses startled by this mercy? He is so concerned at every turn for the people's safety, our survival of his holiness. Whatever the content of Moses' heart and mind right now, one thought is crowding its way to the front. Moses wants more of him. This God is so complex, he's beyond understanding, but Moses wants to try. And the old man doesn't just want the assurance of Yahweh's might as they move toward the promised land. He doesn't want a proxy. He doesn't want protection. He wants Yahweh. The closeness he experienced with Aaron and Joshua on the mountain, the moments he spent at the summit, the weeks that passed like minutes, it's occupying his thoughts, consuming his dreams. Once you've tasted the wonder, the beauty, the strength and peace of deity, nothing else is enough. But the people's ambivalence is, well, it's driving Yahweh away. Back at the camp, a weary Moses shares the news. We must leave this place, and Yahweh will not go with us. The people's stomachs drop. They mourn, and in their penitence, 
find it easy to obey Yahweh's decree that they are to strip off their ornaments. Soon, the Egyptian plunder lies piled in the corners of their tents. With their ears and necks unadorned, the Hebrews look less like the family of a king and more like, well, the way they looked as slaves of the empire. Hope ebbs as they look out at the waiting wilderness and back up at Mount Sinai. They will leave, and the misty, fiery house of God will remain. And what will come of that? Somewhere among the tents, Moses stares at the mountain, and he too turns his face toward the road ahead. Yahweh's words ring in his ears. I will not go with you. Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening to Bound and Determined, the penultimate episode in this season's telling of the Exodus story. I can't believe this journey is almost over. Next time, the conclusion. If this episode broke your heart, the next one, well, I think the next one might put it back together. Now, I have something very exciting to share with you. This fall, I'm embarking with some incredible partners on a new adventure, and you are invited. Let me tell you about Storied Family Camp. It's a weekend retreat for families with kids between the ages of 3 and 18 that's centered on one thing, leveraging the enchanted power of story to raise resilient kids whose hearts are anchored to God. If you're a parent, you'll hear from myself and my wife, author J.L. Gerhardt, about how to live a good story with your kids and how to tell a good story to your kids, uh, one that draws them close to Yahweh and cultivates a family culture of faith and joy. It'll be inspiring and instructive, and while you're hanging out with us, your kids will be having fun with some stellar folks devoted to ministering to them while you learn. Uh, But this is family camp, so you will also spend some quality time with your kids during the weekend. Uh, cool stuff like zip lining, rock climbing, kayaking, rappelling, archery, and cave exploring. The whole thing happens at a gorgeous spot on the Nueces River a couple of hours outside of San Antonio, Texas. There will be some powerful times of worship, great meals cooked for you, cabins to sleep in, and how about we do some Holy Ghost stories with live musical accompaniment around a blazing campfire. Yeah, let's do that too. October 13th to the 15th, those are the dates, and all the info is at hazefirestudios.com slash storiedfamilycamp. hazefirestudios.com slash storiedfamilycamp. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can get there from the Holy Ghost Stories website as well. But here's the thing. We want this to be an intimate experience, so we have to keep the group small. We're limiting Storied Family Camp to about 10 total families, and as of this episode's release on June 5th, there are six families signed up. So if this sounds like a way that you'd like to invest in your family, whether it's you and your spouse, or you're a single parent, whether your kids are adopted or biological or you're fostering, now is the time to book your spot. I'm telling you, nature, adventure, storytelling, worship, learning, family, and him, this will be an epic weekend. You can find the link at holyghoststories.org. I would love to see you there. And now, 
Thanks to the fantastic folks who donated their hard-earned money to make this particular episode possible. Spacek Floor Care, run by Sloan and Ricky and Melanie Spacek, Sherry Brinkley, Clint Pering, Todd White, Melissa Hunt, Ellen McKenzie, Nicole Hatton, Sharon and Ed Ditto, and Monet Mills. Thank you each so very much. And also, this podcast would not happen if not for the monthly generosity of the patrons of Holy Ghost Stories who give through Patreon. There are three tiers of incredible donors over there. You should become one if you're not already. Uh, and we all want to give a wholehearted shout out to the sacrificial givers we call the Tours: Joshua, Hildy, David, John and Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Travis, Steve, Daniel, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Cheyenne, Helen, Debbie, Scott, and Susan, Elizabeth, Rick, Derek, Jeff, Maddie, Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. I feel like I'm climbing Sinai with you guys again and again. Thank you. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Our composer is Kendall Ramsour. Our sound engineer is Joel Doli. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and direction by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time. Mm-hmm.